0: Coming up next, the book he reads Martin Dressler by Stephen Milhauser, comma, a novel by The Tale of an American Dreamer. Coming up next.
1: A novel by A Tale of an American Dreamer? <laughs> <laughs> what in the world? I
2: don't know. <laughs> <laughs> eating <laughs> microphone. What are you talking about? Bro? There is Madness.
0: Welcome to The Booketing. My name is Nathan Oberson. I am your humble and obedient host of The Booketing, only the best Christian literature podcast. Now, does that mean that it's about Christian literature? Like the left behind? No! No, idiot! It means it's about normal literature, but it's a podcast with Christians on it. Right, Brandon? That's right. And it's the best. Yes. We've got arguably the two greatest minds... That exists in the 21st century. We've got the pastor who's a master of reading himself, Jacob Menzel. How you doing, Jake?
1: I'm I'm okay. How are you? Better
0: than I deserve, my friend.
2: Oh, boy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We've also got
0: Mr. Grinch over there. Mr. No Attitude. Nope. A man that needs mm, mo attitude, less gratitude. Or no, no, no. Less attitude. Less attitude. Mo gratitude. Mo gratitude. That's right. Brandon Chastain, old Grumpus himself. That's what
2: they call me. Old Grumpus. Old Grumpus. <laughs> we got a new nickname. Christmas, I go around dressed in gray, and I drop coal into children's stockings. Yeah. Krampus. 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 Yeah,
1: Krampus, yeah. Krampus. Same, same.
2: That's right. Kinda you same. got cloven feet. I
0: do. That's why I wear these shoes. you got the body of a Greek god. Specifically, the cloven feet of, of <laughs> Bacchus sorry. or whatever.
2: Yeah, I've got the body of Bacchus. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm so sorry, guys. We
2: just got to get past this.
0: All right, folks. Let's do some donor shoutouts. Donor shout outs. It's the part of the show where we shout out some donors. Don't you know? Donor shout outs. It's my favorite thing. Donor shout outs. It makes me sing. Our donors, they give me money. Our donors, I call them honey. Our donors, they are funny. Why would you give money
2: to the (laughs) bookening? That's the way you're ending the song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, why would you give money to the bookening?
0: Hey, Brandon.
2: Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) You ready to
0: shout it out for our donors? Yeah, let's do it. Hey, Jake. You ready to help Brandon shout it out for our donors? I can well, see it by the look. I wasn't ready for it, but if... All right, guys. You're both going to help with the shout outs. Yay. Yay. yeah Yeehaw. Yeehaw. All right. You know what? I'm going to shout it out to a guy that has given us $1. <laughs> we got a guy
1: who's given us $1? Let's
0: yeah, do it. Let's well, just shout it out to him. I know it invalidates all the people that gave 10 but you know what? You, you remember that parable?
1: It's a good parable.
0: Look it up. Let's shout it out to Ben.
1: Ben. Ben. Not he gave a dollar, man. Yeah, Saying his name's enough. Ben, if you want us to shout it out more, then up give your more. game, buddy. Yeah, up your game.
0: <laughs> you know what? Let's not shout it out to Ben. Yeah, let's not shout it out forget, to Ben. Forget Ben. Ben. Eep, 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 eep. That's my impression of crickets. Like <laughs> <laughs> mice. Let's shout it out to actual donor Ben.
1: Actual ben! donor Ben. Let's shout it out to Beth. Beth. Beth.
0: Let's shout it out to. Eric and Catherine, lovebirds. Eric, and, Eric Catherine and Catherine, the
1: lovebirds.
2: Love <laughs> I wasn't even going to try. Let's <laughs> shout it out to John and Jill, oh, the lovebirds. John, John and Jill, the lovebirds. And Max.
0: And Max. Let's shout it out to Dr. Shivago. Chivago. Chivago. <laughs> Dr. Zhivago. And now, let's shout it out to a non-fictional, Dr. X. Mr. X. Professor,
1: Professor X. X. Professor Professor X.
0: X. And let's shout it out to uh, Nathan. Nathan. And let's shout it out to Rhonda and Robert.
1: R- the R- love and Robert, Robert. The
2: lovebirds.
0: <laughs> nice job, fellas. Let's say we talk some more, Martin Dresler.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right,
0: guys, let's talk about Martin Dresler, the guy. The guy.
1: Martin himself. Mm-hmm.
0: I read a lot of things by people who felt annoyed by Martin's character, and particularly by people who felt like his point of view was restrictive. There were people who said that Milhauser did the book or the reader a disservice by not giving you more than what Martin gives you, because Martin doesn't really understand himself, and Martin doesn't really understand anyone else, and they were annoyed by this. Huh. <laughs> Your thoughts. <laughs>
2: I guess my thoughts are if Milhauser had set up the novel in such a way as that should be what we were expecting from it, then yeah. I would have more patience with that sort of crit- criticism. But how about we critique the novel that he wrote instead of the one he didn't? There we go. We'll <laughs> clean our hands of that. What, I, mean, I mean, like, what do you guys think that there's something narcissistic about the book? So, is the question then, are they trying to equate Martin Dressler with Stephen Milhauser? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, they're saying like that's the only way that this line of criticism works. I well, mean,
0: yeah. Well, I'm I'm not trying to defend the line of criticism. Might may well be a dumb line of criticism, but I did read a number of people yeah. who said the book is so severely limited by Martin's own lack of awareness that you just don't end up being able to have anything to grasp onto, and it feels maybe a little narcissistic on Milhauser's part. Like, he doesn't care what, particularly the feminist critics would say, he doesn't really care what the women are, you know, Caroline, and they're all oh, ciphers,
2: whatever. Well, as soon as you say that this is the feminist critics, they're always narcissistic and how much they care about the fact that women are underrepresented in books written by men.
1: Guess what? If I'm not mistaken, the title of the book is Martin Dressler. I want
0: to say you're not mistaken
2: at all, sir.
1: It seems to be that the book and is about Martin Dressler.
2: Yeah, it's the same criticism people bring against, like, David Copperfield, or what's another one, Tristram Shandy? Tristram Shandy? You'll hear those criticisms, but the defense is always the same, and it's that the novelist set out to write a book from the perspective of a character.
1: Who happened to be the kind of man that he was.
2: A dreamer and a narcissist. You don't have to read the book, but... It speaks well to Milhauser's ability as a writer that he's pretty committed to the perspective through the whole book You would want him to be as a craftsman to be to stick to that point of view.
1: It's not that dissimilar from the kind of criticism where you'd have a fantasy hero and somebody would say, that's unlikely. Yeah. Right? Like, well, you know, that's the point. That's the point. It's unlikely and it happened in this world. And that's what makes it a fantastic story is because a fantastic thing happened. I guess
0: the only way I could see it is if we felt like Milhauser was saying that Martin is awesome and we disagreed. Like if Milhauser is somehow buying into Martin's extremely limited, almost autistic, I want to say, almost like Asperger's kind of structural, I don't care about anybody, but this weird engineer, creativity, consuming the world thing. Maybe that's the tension that these people are... I, I don't know what those people are actually feeling, but maybe that's a worthwhile question to ask is, is Martin a person who it's fruitful for a novel to assume the point of view of, and is Milhauser doing it in a
2: helpful way? That's their criticism? Is that it's not? That's my giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's your best attempt the, at charity towards them. The best attempt at what... Okay. A
1: good
0: version of what they might actually be saying,
1: if that's the case, then you get to be that outside perspective and say Martin's a bad dude. Milhauser doesn't have to give you that. He just has to give you Martin. Does that make sense? Like if you want to be it's, critical that Milhauser doesn't tell you what to think about Martin, he just gives you Martin, then you're not you're not thinking. you're not engaging with martin as a as a character.
2: It's like a book it, Lolita which is that has a whole history behind it, but Humbert Humbert. You're not really supposed to admire Humbert Humbert, but the book is from his perspective. Right. And you can ask the question whether or not the book Lolita should have ever been written in the first place. That's that's a different question. Right. Right. I agree with that. So I think it's a different question as to whether or not Martin Dressler is the kind of character we should care about or want to read from his perspective. And that's a question as to whether or not the book is getting towards anything that we should value, right? Well, what's the answer to that question? What's the answer to that question? Yeah, just moving on to that question. Yeah, I think that this book gets to something that we should value. Which is what? Yeah, so the point of the book... Give us a thesis statement. We can work backwards from it. So the thesis statement of the book is that your attempt to make sense of and contain the world with any system that you create yourself is going to fail, and that the best thing you can do is to be at peace with your limitations and to live in the world as a limited human being. I think that's kind of the end point. Jake, agree, disagree... Crossfire.
1: I don't know if I want to give, if I want to. So there are two things that I see going on. One is uh, the struggle of an American to realize the American dream. And the other is the struggle of an artist to realize his artistic vision. And what you have in Martin is somebody who has a, so long as he's trying to figure out and realize his vision. Everybody is super interested and really cares and is invested. And when he's finally able to do it, to get there, nobody cares. And so then it leaves open the question, it creates these questions of, okay, so is it really somebody's artistic vision that's compelling or is it them being in the process of trying to realize it? Is it the American dream itself that's compelling or is it, is the American dream something that can be realized or is it only the striving after something that's unattainable? What happens to Martin is he, he, he actually attains it at the end. He gets he finally realizes the thing he's been searching for his whole life. And as he's searched for it, as he's given himself to going after it, everybody's been interested and has been like, whoa, what's going on here? This guy is exceptional, and he's doing exceptional things. And the instant he grasps it, well, he's, he's arrived. Nobody cares about that. So I think, you know, so much of the point for Milhauser is that kind of postmodern, it's about the journey, not the destination kind of thing. Like the destination is actually kind of lame when you get there. Right. But when, you, when you're on the journey, everybody's on a journey, and so everybody can enter into the journey because yeah. they're all striving after something that's unattainable. They want somebody to follow that they feel like is ahead of them. And so that's what made Martin <clears throat> interesting early on when Martin finally realized that it was like, oh, this is, at, this is your idea of the world What you were saying, Brandon, the striving for the world within the world, like that's it. Like that's all it actually is. It's actually kind of lame in the end. And, you know, and then Martin has this moment, you know, at the end where he's going to look at it and he's going to say, oh, well, you know what? I can accept that this vision sucks because nobody liked it. Or I can say, you know what? I did it my way. I realized my vision and not many people get to do that. And it's too bad that nobody liked it. I sure did. And that's that's the the route he takes. So I think Millhauser's making some statements about artistry about and about the American dream um, and about contentment for sure. Whether or not we buy into all of them is another question, but I do think that there's some real truth to when you think of mu- musical artists, for instance, what is compelling about them? It is that they're they're, the most compelling artists are always young, are almost always younger, and it's because they're, they're trying to figure something out. They're going somewhere. And whenever they think they've arrived or they've landed at or realized the thing that they've been striving for, they become uninteresting. You're talking about Bob
2: Dylan now, right? Yeah, I'm talking
1: you know, it's about... like who
2: cares that Bob Dylan's coming through town next month. Right. I'm not going to spend 50 bucks to go see him.
1: Well, what Dylan, what Dylan realized early on... Why Dylan became so timeless for so long. He resisted, in, I think intuitively, every box. Mm-hmm. When everybody thought he was going to be the perfect protest singer who was going to replace Woody Guthrie, he went electric, and he wrote nonsense songs. And when everybody thought he was this like transcendent poet, he became a Christian. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. And when everybody thought he was a stupid Christian, he became a mystic and when everybody thought he was a mystic he became a roots a roots traditionalist mm-hmm. and now he's just an old guy <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> who does whatever he feels like sort of earned the right and, he, and he's earned the right and he just you know you should care about what i do and say cuz i'm bob dylan but you know bands go stale when they sort of like figure out the thing that they think they like, and that makes them great, and they just try to repeat it. Bands that don't go stale are bands that are reinventing themselves. They're still, the, they're still the Beatles, but they're constantly reinventing themselves and figuring out what, what that means and where to take it. And then yeah. they die at the and right then they, time. And then they die. And you Or the Radiohead, stupid punk garage band, yeah. becomes this thing that is in motion, and that's compelling where they're going to end up and where they're taking makes, you. That's
2: yeah, writers... Or the same way? With each Shakespeare play, you had no idea what to expect.
1: Right. It's not that Shakespeare has figured out how to be the perfect Shakespeare. It's that Shakespeare is always doing something new, and and he's pushing up against his limits, and he's trying something different. And you just want to know. You want to see where the guy who's on fire is going to go next. And this is why I think that actually, you know, it's not true. It's not always true. Maybe it's been historically true. This is why Christians make the best artists should. Because Christians have a destination, and they're never going to arrive. And that destination is holiness. Yeah. It's sanctification. And so there's a place we're going, and we're going to God. That's interesting and compelling. And it's going to look different for different people. And it's going to look different in each new iteration, but it's never going to be boring. And if it is, it's because you're not going to God. You're doing something You're going wrong. somewhere else. I think that Millhauser is, by the end of this, he's trying to expose or show something of the reality of that, what's the word I'm looking for? You can't quite grasp the...
2: Intangibility?
1: Yeah. Unattainable. uh, Unattainable, unrealizable goal. It's just always out of reach. What he gives us is this, you brought up in the last episode, uh, the Chesterton quote about you take an ordinary boy and then you put him in a world of dragons. What he's done is he's given us a dragon and he's put him not among dragons, but in a world of ordinary people. right? Mm-hmm. And what that allows us to do is sort of nobody is Martin right. in real life. Nobody realizes, nobody goes off on this bizarre vision and has the, as he puts it, the gods open every door, the powers that be sort of, and then realize, actually realizes his, right. his vision. That just doesn't happen. The point of giving us that is so that we can step back and see maybe the vanity of what we're chasing after. Yeah. What you
0: do often hear about, it's always a part of the myth of, People like Dylan or th- just any great creative is you always hear the story of the Martin Dresler, the guy that was actually doing it before the guy that made it popular and right. was doing it in such an extreme, undiluted way that nobody got it. Right. You know, there's always if it's a famous comedian, then it was the friend that was actually funny, and but they could but never. But
1: the friend realized the genius of. Right of the of the dude, and also realized, and that yeah, it's that sort of like in in you and I, we have, and maybe the three of us have had this conversation too about there is always that avant-garde crazy genius who is untethered in some some way, and he goes off. And there's some kernel of real genius in what he's, or maybe it's not, maybe it, it's all pure genius, but it's so. So genius that he's operating on another plane or another level, and he's not able to make to, to connect with people. Well,
0: there's part of me that resists mythologizing those people. It's like if you can't actually find a way to make it work for real people, then you're not a genius. You're a madman, and right? You haven't actually done your job, and you haven't actually been diligent or humble or had any of the real qualities that an actual creative should have. And um, right,
1: which is why we're actually right to lionize the guy who's able to look at the madman and see the genius in what he's doing, see what he's missing, like overshooting, and and turn around and package it in a way that actually connects with real people.
0: That's where I find myself maybe disagreeing with Milhauser. Like, I don't know if he, what he wants to say is that he wants to be very sentimental about the fact that the world rejected Martin. Like, wouldn't it be great? Yeah, of course, Martin failed, but wouldn't it be great if he didn't? You know, there's kind of that pathos. Instead, at the
1: end. what happened is, like, what would really happen is somebody bought his restaurant chain and realized that restaurant chains were a really awesome thing and turned them into something cool for everybody. McDonald's. And if
0: you want to pretend like this is a historical document, then you can say, well, Disney came along and he gave us Disney World. Yeah. I mean, there's a way to do what Martin wanted to do and do it such that people want to pay for it enjoy it and get a lot of pleasure out of it and get a lot of inspiration out of it and wonder and not be a weirdo about it
1: yeah and this is the fight that artists have all the time it's like well everybody hates walt Di- every artist hates walt disney for disneyfying everything
0: it's an actual word that people use the disneyfication of our culture the disneyfication of this but
1: but the fact is walt disney is a genius mm-hmm. and he's left the legacy of genius behind and what that genius is is taking all kinds of things and packaging them in a way that everybody will love. And you can call that lowest common denominator, but there's some real genius that goes into making that kind of lowest common denominator that is missing. It's why My Soul Among Lions is folk music. Whatever the shortcomings of My Soul Among Lions may be, there's an idea. And the idea is that the actual best kind of Settings of the psalms should be catchy and singable and relatable to normal people, and not so high on the shelf that you have to go to Friday night psalm sings for months before you can start to be able to participate in singing the psalms. That's really weak. That's a artistic failure. If your idea of creating something elegant for the people of God likes the simplicity that appeals to and, and is relatable to normal everyday people. And we talk about this all the time. It's the virtue of being simple without being simplistic. Yeah.
2: You know. Well, to put that in terms of this novel, is it Rudolf Arling is the The architect, the the guy who comes and helps him. Yeah. So two things here. One, the architectural reviews that they get, I think they go to your point there because Mm -hmm. they're always condemning them for being what almost too popularist, right? Not being refined enough. It always makes Rudolf Arling mad because he says they're not getting our vision. They're not seeing what we're really trying to do. So they're, in other words, they're not appealing to the high class, the guys who are supposed to be the keepers of what's good and beautiful. And so I do think that there's definitely that point in the novel that's coming out. Also is the fact that um, I found it interesting that Martin Dressler, he's not really a businessman. He's more of a creative yeah he has to go to the businessmen to get the money, yeah. and so they're to
1: come up with the plans and to make sure the schematics work and that's right, yeah make sure that the electricity is going to be run properly, and yeah uh, and so the that's why I keep thinking of him as an artist more yeah, than yeah he's as an, an artist who just
2: happened to get the CEO position of a big corporation that was able to build these big hotels,
1: but it's like you know what drives him is not. It's not making money. It's like even when he's at the hotel, he's super attuned to things that are gonna make people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Things that are gonna make
2: it's that charismatic vision that he has, which I guess goes, I mean, we see that with Steve, well, Steve, Job, Steve Jobs. Kind of I was about way. to say,
0: it's the thing that makes those, the myth, whether it's true or not, it's the thing that makes the myth of guys like Steve Jobs Steve Job so compelling. He just had this thing. He thought that computers should be this way and they could be a bicycle for the mind and they could be this thing. And it didn't matter what, you know, a bunch of people thought their computers should have. He just knew what they should have if Steve Jobs had lived, would he have pursued that vision to madness? I mean, would he have eventually created the dumb thing that no one, would he have made his, uh, what's it called? Grand Cosmo. What's the thing called? The
2: Big Cosmo. Grand
0: Cosmo. The Big itself.
2: Lebowski. The, yeah, the Grand Cosmo. He kind of did, which is why he got fired the first time, right? He built some sort of computer that was so ahead of its time that... They like got rid of him. But didn't actually they do
0: anything besides the three things that
2: Steve maybe Jobs I'm wanted to do. This, but then they brought him back for another shot. No, we're not doing a Steve Jobs podcast. What? We'll read the Steve Jobs autobiography next year.
1: You can make the case that what Dressler ended up, maybe what was Dressler's big failure, is that he made too perfect of an imitation of the world as it is that. What's the point? Why would I be in here when I could be out there? Like what part of that was, uh, I don't even know. What is that kind what, of the artist the God of, complex? I'm yeah. actually
0: going to contain the entire World. universe that God well, made in my, my hotel. Creation, yeah. Yeah. What, it turns out something selective, like the new wrestler that's just showing you parts of it is much right, more It's compelling. just that one
1: aspect of it. Yeah. The whole point of of good art is that it draws out that one little aspect, that one little detail, that one thing or those five details, whatever, but the limited, even just a a medium like painting. Mm -hmm. Why is a painting compelling? Well, it's not just like real life and you're excluding uh, smell and Mm -hmm. you're uh, excluding hearing. You just have what you see. And that focuses your attention on a detail or on a thing in a way that in real life you don't. A poem is the same way.
0: Well, And also the great art, by being selective, it finds what's all-encompassing, what's like the Mona Lisa, to take a really hackneyed example, it's compelling because there's the mystery of all women in this one woman, in her smile. Yeah. And if... It's that snapshot. If he tried to paint every woman, you don't get that. But he paints just this one random duchess or whatever it is. I don't know who the Mona Lisa is. but And somehow he just captures something that we can all relate to. Right. It's really uncanny
1: and weird. But then when you end up... When your creation is it's it's the world it's everything then nothing's isolated nothing's drawn out nothing's special nothing is and so nothing is any more uniquely compelling than walking out the of doors. Great
0: joke of the novel, which I love the just the punchline of him hiring actors to actually play
1: real people, people
0: and then hiring someone.
1: To play to himself, play himself.
0: <laughs> and yeah. to just wander around appreciating everything. <laughs> it's just like the
2: ultimate exercise in pointless God complex narcissism. In that sense, it is a fun metaphor for uh, what a lot of people criticize, at least realist literature for being is what's the point? if it's not going to have some fun adventure or some entertaining aspect to it, why should I care? And so that's a lot of the criticism I hear when people like think about war and peace. Mm-hmm. Like, what's fun about war and peace? Why Why don't, Why don't? shouldn't I just go read a historical novel about the period? Right. Our first-hand accounts of what happened. Because Tolstoy has built a world in that book that's just a perfect snapshot of Russia in 1812. Right. And so why should they care? They could just go read histories and get the same information. I think you kind of, you see Milhauser reflect on that aspect of art that the artist creates, but a lot of people aren't just, they're not going to get it. Right? They're going to see it as well. So what?
0: I guess I should ask the dumb question that I think in last episode I said I was going to ask, which is you think that, and I know we can't really answer this question and I don't. Stephen Milhauser, if you're listening, I have no idea what you're trying to do with this novel. I really don't care. Just as a point of Interest. What does it feel like Stephen Milhauser is doing with this novel? Is this autobiography? Does this feel like he's saying, I'd love to capture everything with my art and I can't and it frustrates me and I wish that everybody thought I was Walt Disney, but instead I'm Stephen Milhauser and yeah, sure, I win a Pulitzer, but I wasn't expecting Um. to when I wrote this and nobody cares and you're all dumb and I'm awesome. Is there that chip on the shoulder in here somewhere or is he evincing some
1: humility about it. I mean, I think, I actually, I thought that it's a really tough question. Martin himself, I think, has a kind of sweetness and humility in how he just sort of accepts and embraces.
0: The last page of the book is really beautiful, actually, and unexpected, I think.
1: Yeah, but is it pompous for Milhauser to... Paint that picture of himself. Right. If that's what he's doing, then the answer might be yes. I'm not I'm not quite sure what to think about that.
2: About the ending?
1: Well, that- see, he gives us I think Dressler ends up being pretty heroic in his sort of like Existential, uh, existential resignation. Yeah, yeah. His 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 um He was in no hurry.
2: He w- yeah.
1: He was the knight of infinite resignation or whatever. Well, I
0: love that little. Uh, it's a beautiful phrase. He had dreamed of the wrong dream, and that was okay. Like he understood. Yeah, it's the wrong <laughs> dream. <laughs> I'm not gonna. The world doesn't want this dream, but it was my dream, and it's pretty cool that I got to do do it.
2: Found a quote by uh, I found a quote by Mel Hauser where he says that he likes the idea of starting with something ordinary and then pushing and pushing to see what happens. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what happens with that's what Martin's Martin Dressler. He starts with something ordinary, a guy who just wants to start a business. And he pushes and pushes to see what happens. And so if there is any metaphor for the artistic life, I think that it's an extreme. Mm -hmm. Like This is what someone who's just completely crazily committed to realism would do. And it's not supposed to actually be a reflection of what Milhauser wants with his art. And where Dressler ends might be a reflection of where Milhauser thinks an artist should be, which is you're resigned to living in the world And you're in no hurry and you're observing what's around you. Instead of trying to contain it all in a world, you're more like a camera. You're an observer of what's actually just around you.
0: Yeah. I actually think Milhusser does pull it off. Like he doesn't, whether he has a chip on his shoulder or not, you don't actually end up feeling like he does. Yeah, I I didn't. didn't.
2: I didn't feel that way. I don't think he has a chip on his shoulder.
0: It is a beautiful ending. It's not the ending that I expected. I actually did expect a big grand self-destruction of I some I did type. too, yeah. And he's moving in that direction when he hires the actors and it's just like... But then he's
1: just... Son, he, what he gives him is liberation. He's free, right? Yeah. And it's a
0: really nice feeling. He really captures that walking out into the sunlight for the first time in a long time feeling that you have when you're sick or whatever, you know, and just like, oh, this is what grass smells like. That's nice. Oh, there's some boys playing ball. That's nice. He he really captures
2: that. Yeah, it was unexpected. I think there are two ways you could look at it. One, at least, he didn't like end committing suicide and killing himself, which is where I thought it was probably going. Two, it's it is reflective of just this postmodern malaise with your. This is where you're going to end up, and the best you can do is just accept it. There, are the the in other words, the author doesn't put any crisis in here. He doesn't escalate things into like any sort of moral right tension like you'll have with Tolstoy or someone right. like that where he's not shaping the world in such a way as to force it to a moral crisis. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And and authors can use that sort of their ability to drive something towards that where where the character finally hits up against their reckoning to make their point. So, I don't know. You could see this as a very postmodern way of just, you don't get a reckoning like that, and the best you can do is just to come to terms with it. It reminds me a lot of this movie I just watched called Patterson. Have you heard of it?
0: I've heard the name. I forget what it is.
2: It's a Jim Jarmusch movie about this poet in the Brooklyn, or no, it's a, some working class town, and mm-hmm. he drives a bus. And the movie just follows him day by day. And that's the whole point of the movie is just to watch this guy just kind of observe his life as he struggles to write poetry and also be a bus driver. There's no, no
0: point beyond that. That's yeah, not the ending of Citizen Kane where... He's in the ruins of his own self importance, and he's Xanadu is crumbling around him, and he's dying wishing for his uh his past to be able to reclaim to reclaim his childhood or something like it's not it's not there's no grand gesture of despair or of happiness. it's just eh, I tried
1: also who cares about my wife?
0: Yeah, well, I guess we should uh, do another round of talking about martin's uh sex life. It's a PG-13 episode, folks. If your kids are watching or listening, whatever it is that you do with podcasts, if you're just watching a blank screen, watching the waveforms or something, that's silly. What was the deal with... Uh, <laughs> with the women? With the women in this book, guys. They're strange. Did you think that... Because I really... This is an honest question. I don't know the answer. Was Carolyn supposed to be real? Like, was that... Mm, Matt. Was that him just moving into pure metaphor or dream? Or was she supposed to read as some sort of a woman that we might meet in real life?
1: No, Caroline is is real. Caroline is exactly the kind of woman that it, I think it makes psychological sense for Martin Dressler to end up married to. That's what I think. I think that Dressler is always reaching for something that's elusive, something that's outside, something that he can't wrap his mind around. And what's appealing about Caroline is she is a mystery to him, that he and one that he doesn't understand. And so he, because he's a dreamer, he imagines all of these things about her. He creates a Caroline that's not real, and he imagines himself having the key to unlock her. Turns out she's a flat character in real life. And this happens to dreamer-type people all the time.
0: I agree but at the same time she's so she's almost like retarded like in, she, in yeah cycle, she is a their,
1: little I mean she's exaggerated she doesn't
0: even know what to do on the wedding night she doesn't have any conception of what's hap, what's coming on the wedding well, night um she's
2: She either a, doesn't or she or, pretends she doesn't
0: right but either way it's like what a
1: and the degree to which she doesn't is the degree to which I mean, what, so her dad's dead, and her mom has sheltered her and enabled her. Yeah, I mean, I, I can and I mean, helped create the
2: monster that she's become. I actually think I know a couple people like this. Yeah,
0: I know what you mean, but she just she feels that I can imagine doing these things. She feels a little bit, yeah, metaphorical or exaggerated in the way that I think nobody she else is. Like she's a,
2: she's a bit of a dream character. But it's from the perspective of Martin. She comes so. in
0: with the gun at the end. That's a weird thing. Um, but
2: I don't think it's out of character for her either. But
0: then you're right. He gives her little touches of humanity. She does make a friend. She does, sometimes she'll say things. Like, she's not completely wraith-like. She's given some non-cartoonishness.
1: Yeah, and, and a lot of that maybe non-cartoonishness comes from, from Emmeline, actually, or from... Her mom.
2: Yeah, she's the most dreamlike in the beginning when she's refuses to talk. Well, then when she's just like in her
0: languor, she reminded me yeah. of that the daughter of Lady Catherine a little bit. And uh, yeah, who's meant to be a funny character, like just a humorous exaggeration yeah. of that sort of thing. But she's just so laying with her back turned to him in the bed, just like and then like lounging on the couch. And then she does this weird. What's with the sister meld? At the end, like just the, how do you read that? The The sister what? Sister meld or like the, why does, why does... um, It makes sense. Why does Martin lose, what's her face? Emmeline? Yeah.
1: So Martin and Emmeline were made for each other. Martin realized that, I think, even though he also recognized that... what was attractive and erotic about Caroline was the mystery of her. And Emmeline was in a mystery. And she was just a perfect friend.
0: Be attracted to Emmeline. He, like, co- he, no he way
1: couldn't he could. eroticize that relationship because she was such an awesome friend and like a sister. But what I think he realized, or maybe should have realized is that great fin- friends actually make great lovers. But be all, be all that as it may, what ends up happening then is he ends up, the sexual relationship is with, Caroline, sort of, but not because she's cold to him. And so then it's also with other people. But all of the emotional fulfillment, the real intimacy comes with Emmeline and it makes Caroline jealous. What ends up happening is Emmeline really does feel like she's committed adultery with Martin Mm -hmm. because it's been an emotional, a truly emotionally adulterous relationship. It's a codependent, emotionally intimate relationship that passes the, surpasses the bounds of what is appropriate for a married man.
0: And then Caroline reveals a pretty realistic streak of vindictiveness that...
1: Yeah, and who knows where she was aiming the pistol.
0: But even before that, when she's pushing Emmeline into her bed, yeah. it's just the perfect revenge.
1: Yeah, yeah. What she's doing is she's, she's saying you've got him, go ahead and have him, right? She's just like, really? It's sort of like, we brought up the Joker a couple of times. It's sort of like the Joker. It's like, go ahead. Go ahead, do it. the nastiest thing. Go ahead, do it. Do Do it. Go ahead, finish the job. You're nine-tenths of the way there. Take the last tenth. Come on, do it, do it. And what that ends up doing is, she breaks Emmeline, is what happens. She breaks her. Emmeline realizes that she can't have any actual relationship with Martin in good conscience. So she's done. She's just going to be Caroline's sister, which is sad for Emmeline, but it's how Caroline actually controls that family and ends up controlling her. So yeah, I mean, it's a little, Caroline, I think is a little bit of a grotesque, Yeah, but she's also, she's the kind of grotesque that rings true and actually makes sense that Martin would have a dumb dreamer kind of Attraction to this girl
0: and also I think millhouser actually does a good job of giving you just enough of caroline's other interests and that you realize martin has completely in his way objectified her in such a way that she couldn't be anything but a wraith to him right know?
1: yeah he's not um
0: Yes, she is a passive, ridiculous person, but he he wouldn't be able to see beyond that. We don't really know. We don't get an opportunity to know what's interesting about Caroline or real about Caroline beyond this eroticized, weird ghost that Martin's created for himself.
2: We do get a sense, though.
0: Yeah, with her friend, whatever that. Well,
2: was. I think you were hitting on it with she's a grotesque. And so, like Bill Sykes is grotesque because he's a tyrant and just nasty and his masculinity is just blown up into proportions where he becomes a monster and so she's a monster because her femininity is what she uses to be her poison that she kills people with right and that's how she controls her family and so she's a grotesque because it emphasizes that
0: but it does make sense for a girl with no dad and a ridiculous shallow mother enabling mother and a loving
1: a loving sweetheart of a sister
2: right that she would become that sort of monster yeah. Nominate her for the monster squad. Caroline's going in our monster squad.
1: Yeah, Martin should go in there with her though. What I mean, what kind of, a? I mean, it again, it makes perfect psychological sense that he would be that angry on his wedding night, that he on his wedding night would
2: say, There is that, yeah. I forgot about him and doing go that. Up,
1: and then decide eventually I'm going to quit trying. I don't even care anymore. I'm going to have the emotional relationship with Emmeline and i'm just going to sleep with random people in my hotel for the mm. sexual relationship and who cares about yeah. caroline
0: did martins ability to be james bond and just sleep with everybody uh, make good sense to you guys
2: uh yeah um, it made sense except that one scene came out of nowhere Which one? i still don't understand what happened there
0: the just the, the lady not the first lady the random lady yeah not the lady i that think that first it was just meant him, to but...
1: be i think it was just meant to give you a snippet into a snapshot of the kind of thing that kind of always sort of happens to Martin to just sort of hint at and tease. This is what I do think that it makes sense that Mar- Mar- Martin was a rock star. He had the rock star glow about him, you know.
0: And he had um, what? It's what made him a good, it's what got him into the Vanderlin at the first place. When he was a boy, he could anticipate people's needs and meet them in his Martin Dressler systematic he, I don't know how to put my finger on this, but it's something that you recognize in people that in the real James Bonds of the world who are completely narcissistic, but also they get away with it because and they don't really ultimately get away with it. That's not what I'm saying, but they they achieve their conquest because they're able to what?
1: Well, I, I there's mean, a reason. I that think that I, th- I think the the distinction, the difference between Bond and Dressler is that Bond's a macho confidence man, right? Who's gonna go out and go on the prowl. And But
0: Dressler's the kind of guy that an old bored wife, rich white socialite, would seduce.
1: Right. And the reason is because he's got this... His virility is in his like... It's tied with his creativity and his compassion and his you know, his glow. The the glow about Martin is he's a man on fire. He's a man who's always going somewhere. He's a man who's overflowing with creative ideas, and all of them are tuned to the to the sensitivities of other people. And everything he does exudes that. And so you have the board wife who sees. This boy who she intuitively knows understands her, understands what makes her tick, what makes her happy, what makes her uncomfortable, and intuitively is just able to just sort of always meet all of her and anticipate and meet all of her needs. And I think that that's, that can be really appealing to people.
0: Well, there's something almost sociopathic about it, though. It's not – he doesn't actually care about anybody but himself. But right. But that's actually what gives him his virility. Like – And I have known people like that, and I'm sure we all have. I mean, it's just like, it's a type that's very recognizable from real life, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. Tupac, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tupac, he knew that if he put a song or two about his mom or whatever on his albums, that was sweet and sensitive and thoughtful, that people, and there are all kinds of horror stories about women, were ready to line themselves up and throw themselves...
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to talk about that in a way that's going to be helpful for anybody, but it's sort of a, it's like, a, so Yeah, <laughs> a friend of ours, he feels very uncomfortable with Milhauser. I don't know what word he uses, maybe erotic, maybe pornographic, sensuous, sensual.
1: No, I've heard him use the word pornographic.
0: Right. And he doesn't mean that it turns him on. What he means is... There's, it's that accumulation of detail that I read a critic who just said, I reject this hypnotic accumulation of detail. I reject the sensuality of this. I, I don't like it.
1: Augustine has this passage in his Confessions. Where he distinguishes between the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That passage from is it First John or yeah, it's First John. So he distinguishes between the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. I talk about it all the time because I found it really very personally helpful. What he what he argues is that the lust of the flesh is a lust for actual physical bodily gratification—food, sex, drink, whatever. But act, actual food, actual sex, actual drink. Lust of the eyes—it's a morbid curiosity for to to see and experience things that are not yours to experience. One of his examples is the corpse at the side of the road. There's nothing gratifying in any physical kind of way about going to see the corpse lying on the side of the road. You might vomit, it might gross you out, it might give you nightmares, but people do it. People rubberneck at accidents when they're driving down the road. And I think pornography fits into this category. It's a desire to see and consume and to have intimate knowledge of things that are not for you to know. I think that when he says Milhauser is pornographic, this is to to give his argument the most credit. It's It's due credit. When he says that Milhauser is pornographic, I think that's what he means. There's something Milhauser is doing where he's pulling back a veil of propriety or something, and he's making you See, imagine—he's feeding this morbid curiosity, this lust of the eyes, this lust to experience or know or have intimate knowledge of things that are not for you to know. I think that's that's what he f- senses and what he feels. Maybe I shouldn't try to speak for him, but that's what I think is maybe the real danger of Millhauser in in the danger of of illusionists and conjurers, maybe too. I don't I don't know. My own attraction to Millhauser is. Um, has something of the allure of the forbidden. Yeah, it does. It has something of the allure of the forbidden, something of the an experience. He's going to show me something that I shouldn't see or make, help me feel something that's not natural or not normal or just outside of the way things ought to be. And the boundary of, um, you know, the art's always trying to make you f- see something different or feel something different, feel differently about something. Good art is meant to train your emotions and how to feel rightly about things that are real and true and good and beautiful. We had our episode not long ago, maybe it was long ago, I don't know by the time, about should Christians read fiction, and we talked about the power of fiction for good and for evil, its ability to to train your emotions and to teach virtue or vice, Uh, awaken your heart to love what's good or to love what's evil. And he certainly knows how to play the strings of your heart to to play that instrument's not wrong. Otherwise we're throwing out fiction and art, right? Then the question is, well is he is he right. doing it in a way that's wrong or is he leading you in wrong places and
0: I think my answer to that question is Milhauser doesn't really care and therefore he's dangerous, but also there's a line there, and I don't actually think he crosses it.
2: Yeah. In this novel. In this novel, particularly, I'd say no. I'd recommend this novel to most people. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think he crosses it a couple times in this novel. Yeah, maybe. I think his just cavalier attitude towards the sex scenes is disturbing. They're pretty In, the, in the adultery. In the mm. adultery, yeah. And he doesn't care
0: about the morality of them, except for insofar as the the not caring is adds an additional layer of Interest and and intrigue.
2: Yeah, yeah, but I get the sense that yeah, if if an, art, and if an author does what Jake is saying, then that's bad. I don't get the sense that he's doing that in this novel. And if it's, I think it's other things that is making this friend of ours say this, though. Yeah, other short other stories. short stories. So I can't speak to this at all. I don't think he does it in this novel.
0: The short stories are much more potent. I do like them. I'm loath to make a final judgment because you really. I mean it's not that everybody's right and everybody's wrong and there is no final judgment to be made but you kind of have to make it for yourself I think like I can't tell anyone where exactly that line is.
1: Yeah no I think that that's right.
0: I if I see someone obviously crossing it then I would hope I would have the courage to call him on it and there's a lot of books that we just don't read on the bookening. Brandon alluded to a couple of them last episode. Well, um,
1: but yeah, in, I mean we talked about this on our poetry episode. Yeah. Right? There there is a musician that shall I sh- shall not be named that shall not be named that I feel pretty strongly I should almost never listen to, right, and it's not because I think he's bad for everybody. I think there are some songs of his that are evil and that nobody should listen to, probably, but I, I wouldn't say that categorically about everything he's done, but for whatever reason, the dude can play my heart like a fiddle is almost always bad. And so I just don't listen to him. I just don't
0: and people ought not to be cavalier about that sort of thing. I think you ought to be able to point to a few people like that in your life that you you just say, you know what, maybe it's okay for other people. Maybe it's bad for everyone. I don't know, but it's not for me. I think if you can do that, then you can feel more freedom to... Except the ones where you feel some tension. Like if you're gonna say you like Milhauser, then it's nice if you can say I don't like somebody else. You know, just as a sort of principle of life. I think it's a good practice in life to be able to point to just some lines that you draw, even if they're a little bit arbitrary or personal. Sometimes just to be able to say, you know what, I'm not gonna watch that. That's the corpse by the side of the road. That's that's just. I don't need to know about that. I don't need to look up this word and find out what the sex thing that everybody was talking about at work was. I don't need to know. Who cares? Whatever it is. I mean, that's a really cheesy, obvious example. But
1: Yeah, and so I have nothing but respect for somebody who looks at Milhauser and his ability to play the... Strings of their heart and say, Yeah, nope. Right. Nope. Not for me. Can't do it. Can't do it. It's dangerous for me. I don't think that you can can take Milhauser in particular and other artists like him and decide that you're just going to give your heart over to them uh, without discernment. Just embrace everything that they do and think that you're going to be okay or cool. You're not. You know, what makes him good is what makes him dangerous. And you need to be aware of the dangers. And that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy him. I'll give you an obvious
0: example from my life. Radiohead, actually. Radiohead is the kind of thing that I can listen to some of the time and enjoy. And there's nothing particularly wrong with Radiohead, I don't think. Gibberish lyrics with really depressing electronic music or whatever you call that stuff that they do. If I was to listen to Radiohead all the time, I would kill myself because it's really potent and it's really despairing and it's really attractive. And it's a
1: very dark existentialist kind of... It's
0: very dark. And it's not that they're really exactly doing anything wrong quote-unquote that i can put my finger on maybe i could put my finger on it but if somebody wants to listen to radiohead that's fine if somebody wants to not say that they're terrible and they'll never listen to them that's fine too for me i can listen to some radiohead but i also can't give themselves myself to radiohead Undiscerningly. That's an easy example, maybe, but it's an example.
1: You know, the Apostle Paul in Galatians says, Those who sow to the flesh reap from the flesh corruption, and those who sow to the spirit reap life. And this is the danger that we're always running up against, whether it's the music we listen to, TV, or movies that we watch, and the books that we read. There are things to be learned and benefit to be derived from a good book and an artist who's capable of awakening thoughts or feelings in you about the world as God made it or about yourself that's why we love what we literature enough to have a show about it but you do you have to have wisdom and discernment and you have to recognize that you know it's like the guy that we're always making fun of who is like I'm going to watch Quentin Tarantino movies so that I understand the evil of the world right it's like no you want to feed your bloodlust and actually try reading Romans 1 and 2 And three, and you'll have a better understanding of the evil. Or if that's too tough for you, spend a day with yourself. Right. In silence. Right. (laughs) Yeah. With the music off and the TV off (laughs) and and your phone. You will know
0: everything you need to know about the evil of the world. Right. (laughs) Honestly.
1: Right. But these are, I mean, I guess this is, you know, this is the conversation that we're always having. And the reason we have to have it again with Millhauser again is because he's just such a potent artist that you have to, You know, Marilyn Robinson's one thing, like, blah. Who cares? Right?
0: Yeah. For some people, though, she's not actually probably.
1: That's probably true.
0: There are people who have a whole range of experiences and associations. Maybe I'm sort of thinking women here uh, because she's a lady, even, if I can make a very broad generalization. You know, there might be people who... Are really attracted to things in Marilyn Robinson to her weird existential faux Calvinist despair in ways that just fly right over me because I'm just like who cares? Mm-hmm. It's like someone plays a chord and it suddenly sets off a pleasure center in your brain that you didn't know you had until you just heard that melody. I mean, it's like Stephen Millhouse, or for me, he just finds he just plays music that nobody yeah. else plays.
2: And some of those pleasure centers are fine, like it's really painful knowing that there are really beautiful things in Gabriel Garcia Marquez, to oh, yeah. go back to him, that I'm sad that I'll never experience again. Mm-hmm. But Gabriel Garcia Marquez is wicked. And it's also fine for listeners out there. You know, there are some books where you should have discernment. And there's also some books where if people who have read it tell you not to read it, you just probably shouldn't do it, yeah. especially if you trust the person. Yeah. And we're t- And I will, without hesitation, tell people you should not read Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's just you're not going to get anything out of him.
0: No. I'm with you there. But
2: there's a bit of sadness because there are moments that you wish you could go back to, but you got to mature out of it and just get over it.
0: And you got to trust God that he created pleasure. And if you trust him and don't try and get the pleasure for yourself and the places where you think you found it, that's the God hatred that I find in myself when I can't read somebody like that. It's, oh, this guy plays music that only I can hear and I'm not allowed to listen to it. How dare God do that to me? it's like, whatever, dude, just wait till heaven. I bet it'll be better. (laughs) I'm just going out on a limb there. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Real risk that you just took. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I bet if I trust God to, you know, sorry to be John Piper here, but if I bet if I trust God to give me ultimate pleasure and satisfaction, he'll come through and be done with worldly pleasures, however enticing they may be. Gabriel García Marquez is super enticing. He is, but to hell with him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, to hell with him. Thanks for listening, everybody.
2: (laughs) Uh, This is the PG-13.
0: Maybe bleep it or something. I don't know. Booking Day was written and produced by Nathan Alberson, performed by Jacob Mensel and Brandon Chastine, And also Nathan Alberson. And, and Nathan, Nathan Alberson. Alberson. Yay! Uh, go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. Give us.
1: Uh, we're really close to crossing that two hundred dollar mark. Yeah, help us cross that two hundred dollar mark. Your money. Well, we really need to hit that two two fifty
0: What happens when we get to two fifty? What do we get what do we get to give ourselves? Is that when we start doing an episode every week? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's like <laughs> one of our prizes.